0: Hello and welcome to a history of the United States, episode seventy-seven, the Yellow Umbrella. In 1856, Alexis de Tocqueville published *Le Ancien Régime et la Révolution*. It contained the passage: "It is not always the going from bad to worse that causes a revolution; it happens more often." There's a people who have been born without complaint, and apparently without feeling, most oppressive laws, throw them off violently as soon as their weight lightens. The system that a revolution destroys is almost always better than that which immediately preceded it, and experience teaches that the most dangerous moment for a bad government is usually that in which it begins to reform. End quote: Tocqueville was trying to come to terms with two drastic events that occurred in the late 18th century: the American Revolution and the French Revolution. While this passage is certainly outdated, it does possess elements of truth. The problems facing the British Empire at the end of the 18th century, were caused by its successes, not by its failures, just as over the coming episodes we need to evaluate what was going on in the various American colonies that led them from where we are presently in the narrative about sixteen eighty we also need to examine what happened in Britain that brought them to that same point now we have only just begun moving the narrative with purpose towards the revolution. So my thoughts on the subject are in their very early stages. The time of writing is 9.24pm on the 30th of April 2017, and who knows how long it will be until we actually cover the revolution itself. I feel like we might need to have a multi-part series on each of the key plays in the revolution on both sides, before I even begin to get into the events themselves, and I expect that it will take me a considerable amount of time. I'm probably not going to reach any firm opinions on the subject, until we've covered the presidencies of Madison and Monroe, putting us firmly on the other side of events, so what you'll experience while listening to the show will also be me changing my thoughts as I cover more and more of the subject. I try to make sure that my opinions never remain static. I'm always open to be persuaded by a good argument, and I'm going to be completely open with you all as my understanding of the subject changes over time. I imagine this will be interesting to trace for people listening to it live, and even more so for those of you in the future having a binge listen. Now, I'm finally going to get to the point of this particular digression. I've been podcasting for a long time. I'm fast approaching podcast number 300. Yet, I've mostly focused my attention on small narratives. Moving individual areas or people through periods of a couple of decades. This might be a biography of Alexander the Great, or covering the colony of Virginia. This is something new for me. I'm beginning to get into a grand arc of narrative, which is going to take place over 100 or so years, containing countless individuals, and will cover most of the world. It's very strange for me, knowing what I'm doing right now, is laying the foundations of something which is going to pay off years later this is how i met your mother level stuff this is season three episode one wait for it mentioning the yellow umbrella for the first time and it's going to pay off seven years later when ted meets the mother on the train station and she's holding it and you're crying i i would say spoiler alert but that show ended three years ago and if you haven't watched it yet one it's your fault and two, just watch it. So, what are you doing listening to this? Just watch it. But anyway, this is our yellow umbrella. This is the first reason I'm going to give for the American Revolution. It's what, at least on what is now 9.44pm, I consider to be the key factor for the American Revolution, and why it was inevitable and it has its origins here, in Britain, in the late 17th century. The sovereignty of Parliament. I have talked many times in this series about the sovereignty of Parliament, and its position as the foundation of British constitutional theory. The idea that all political authority in the United Kingdom comes from Parliament. Parliament is, in essence, British democracy any parliament can override any action made by a previous parliament. This was a lesson learned through the English Civil War. The idea that parliament was sovereign gradually ingrained itself in the minds of proper English gentlemen, but where those English gentlemen lived greatly affected their understanding of just what parliamentary sovereignty meant. For those residing in the home islands, it meant that Parliament itself was sovereign. Parliament, and Parliament alone, was the source of all sovereignty. It alone had the power to tax. Those living in the colonies had a different understanding. They took parliamentary sovereignty to mean that only bodies which were elected had the power of taxation. They wanted their own elected assemblies. They didn't recognize the English Parliament as sovereign over them because they didn't help elected. It is a subtle difference, but would have huge implications down the line, and it is something which has its origins in this period. So let's get into it. We've covered Charles I and Cromwell well enough that I don't feel like I need to go over all of that, so the death of Cromwell marks a useful point to start in 1659. Oliver Cromwell was succeeded by his weak son Richard, which highlighted the absurdity of the interregnum. There were many contributing factors to the English Civil War, but nobody was fighting for Richard Cromwell to be Lord Protector. The only way to save the situation was to recall Charles II from the Netherlands, where he had been in exile. This is, for obvious reasons, highly significant. It broke the divine right of kings. The monarchy existed not because it had been divinely ordained, but because Parliament restored it. Parliament was sovereign and where the monarch's power came from. The sovereignty of the monarch might often be viewed as indistinguishable from that of parliament, but it was impossible not to notice that things had changed forever. The powers of the monarchy and the aristocracy were curbed. For example, all taxation had to be done through parliament. No taxation without representation. The orchestrator of the Restoration was the one old survivor of the old order Edward Hyde, the Earl of Clarendon, and the Lord Chancellor. As a stopgap measure, the relationship between King and Parliament was considered what it had been in 1640. Quite obviously, this couldn't last. Times were changing too quickly. But it was certainly useful in laying groundwork for the future. One example of this wisdom was that Clarendon and Charles granted a general amnesty for the Roundheads in the Civil War. Many Royalists wanted revenge, but Clarendon would not allow it. There were a few executions of notorious regicides, but this was a highly restrained reaction. Two factions begun to emerge. The first was made up of roundheads that had managed to keep their position and were excited at retaining their newfound position in the English Rocky. This group would become the Whig Party. The other group was made up of disenchanted cavaliers, more loyal to the Anglican church than to the king, and who deeply hated the roundheads. This party Became the Tory Party. The Tory Party forced through what has become known as the Clarendon Code, a series of laws of religious persecution targeting dissenters, aka the Roundheads. It was brutal and was far more than either Clarendon or Charles wanted. The Puritans suffered greatly, as indeed did English commerce in general. It was a tough period. But the dissenters held faith in the sovereignty of Parliament. They believed that they would do better in the next general election, and so would be able to undo the Clarendon Code. This is why there was no mass exodus to America, as there had been during the 1640s in the era of Lord. They would have a long wait. This particular Parliament sat for 17 years. Instead, their only redress came from something called a Declaration of Indulgence, which was when parts of laws were suspended by the monarch. Charles, and his court at Whitehall, was quite different to Parliament. It had no particular joy in overseeing persecutions, and tried to tamper with these laws where it could. This made the Puritans themselves extremely uncomfortable, They had sided with Parliament over royal whims, but yet here was Charles protecting them against persecution from Parliament. The fact that another reason for this royal mercy was to protect Roman Catholics, too, was just salt in the wound. Parliament could not abide by this, and declarations of indulgence were outlawed. Yet again, the sovereignty of Parliament trumped the divine right of kings. It was a tough time for the Puritans, but as is always the case, time is on the side of the progressives. Religious toleration was the burning issue of the 17th century. The Puritans were generally more tolerant than most, but you have only to recall relationships between Massachusetts and Rhode Island to understand how this idea of religious toleration was rather watered down compared with our own. But the Puritans were about to find a new ally, who would form the other element of the Whig Party, the Rationalists. Charles II favoured the Skeptics, rather than the rigidities of the Anglican Church. These were the years when Isaac Newton and John Locke emerged onto the scene. This move towards rationalism was spreading out across the country as the witch hunts that had so characterised the first half of the 17th century began to vanish. This more tolerant atmosphere began to spread into the Anglican church with the low church party, which had what we can call broadly liberal views. The last main feature of the early 1660s was the reduction in military spending. The Tory faction in Parliament had a fear of standing armies, based mostly upon the new model army of Cromwell. This was disbanded, but the navy was not feared, and it would prove invaluable in the wars against the Dutch that we have already covered, so I don't particularly want to repeat myself there. Suffice it to say that the Dutch Wars, the Great Plague, and the Great Fire of London made the middle 1660s unpleasant, that and the English were forced to deal with the growing world power that was France. A new age in Europe had arrived in 1661, heralded by the Sun King, Louis XIV of France, beginning his personal rule. England had been distracted for the past 20 years by her own civil war. It was clear to all that the Spanish Empire was waning, her great energy lost. Austria was distracted, defending Vienna against attacks by the Ottoman Turks. Italy and Germany were disunited. Then there arrived Louis Fourteenth, and a brilliant group of statesmen and soldiers serving him. Europe was panicking. The solution, as England saw it, was a triple alliance between England, Holland, and Sweden. This wasn't to last. Charles didn't agree with the line taken by his parliament. He admired France, certainly more than he did Holland. This helped explain the implosion of this policy. We've already covered in in our discussion of New York, which saw the English once again at war with the Dutch by 1672. England soon dropped out of this Protestant league, but Louis XIV was unhappy with the loss of his ally in his desire to conquer the Dutch. He managed to play Parliament and the monarch off each other until the Glorious Revolution. This is where we'll end things for this week. If you've enjoyed today's episode, perhaps you'd be interested in supporting the show. The best way to do that would be to go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. It gives you exclusive access to our membership feed, currently discussing the late Roman Empire. Another very useful, and free, way to help out is to leave an iTunes review if you are so inclined. I'm also on social media, facebookcom slash thehistoryofpodcast, and on Twitter, at at historyjamie. Feel free to send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time, which will be in a little while. I'm exhausted. I love doing the show, but I'm honestly just exhausted. So I am going to be taking the month of July off. So we'll pick up this narrative thread when I return in August. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you then. (laughs) Music <laughs>